If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 933 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Whitney Treple, who just gave us this five-star review. Always great interviews. I never miss an episode, and I'm a proud Patreon supporter. Currently is a great interviewer, and even when it's a guest I don't have any particular interest in, the interview is always interesting. The shows with guest panelists are frequently my favorite, especially if Aaron Lindsay or Grady Hendrix are among the panelists. So big thanks again to Whitney Treple for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 443 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Erin Lindsay, making her 25th appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new novel, The Silver Shooter, the third book in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries. And now here's our interview with Erin Lindsay. All right, so we're here with Erin Lindsay. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so how did you first get interested in fantasy and science fiction? Oh, wow. Um, hmm. I kind of almost, I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in fantasy and science fiction. I think I have to blame my, my auntie, my mom's sister, who always had, and still to this day, has a membership to, you know, those, those video clubs and eventually DVD clubs where you get a certain number every month of movies that came out. She like always v- just like VHS tapes or something. Yeah, they started out and and until recently were VHS tapes still, and then she started getting them eventually in DVDs. But anyways, my auntie always had all the movies, and we would go over there, and she would sit us in front of the the television with these movies, and she was just completely into that stuff. So you know, we grew up on Star Wars and the Dark Crystal and Superman and all of that kind of stuff. And we watched it and rewatched it. The Princess Bride watched it again and again and just really got intense about it. I also had the, um, I had a Fisher Price record player. And on that Fisher Price record player, it was orange plastic record player. And we had, um, The Hobbit. You know the Hobbit that came out, the animated one that came out. In the oh yeah, 80s? yeah. No, we were talking. Actually, we were talking about that record when we uh, when we talked about the Hobbit cartoon. Um, Tom and Andrea I, both had fond memories of the the record. I listened to that to death, and also uh, watched the Last Unicorn to death. So yeah, I mean, I just you know before books were were much more than you know Charlotte's Web and stuff for me. Um, and and A Wrinkle in Time is probably the first book I remember from school that wasn't you know a sort of see Dick run book. <laughs> well, so how about as you're kind of getting into, yeah, like older, like, you know, sort of teenage years and stuff, like what were the kind of fantasy and science fiction books that had the biggest uh, impact on you? Much more um, fantasy than science fiction as far as books go. Um, in the movies, I was more interested in science fiction, but when it came to books, I was more into the uh, fantasy and I remember being really intense about Anne McCaffrey <laughs> for a while. And um and yeah, I actually got really into the Dragonlance books back when that was still TSR. My brother started me down that path. 
Um, he was into D and D when he was in uh, sort of grade eight, grade nine. So I would have been grade six, grade seven. Yeah, I mean, you're saying all this stuff with a vague tone of trepidation, but I, I was totally into like I, I love the Dragonlance books. I had like thirty of them. I still kept like. I still have like 15 of them on my shelf there. I guess um. I'm saying it with a tone of trepidation because I don't know if you if you remember the site that was around for a while, a UK site called Porno Kitsch. Uh, um, I, that, I only know of it because it was in your bio. I was going to ask you about that right. later. Okay. But. Um, anyway, so that, that was a, a site. Um, it's still up. Uh, totally badass site <laughs> for um, sci-fi and fantasy. And as part of that... Um, one of the, the guy who ran that blog, um, with his wife, he, Jared Sheeran, he, uh, blogs quite a bit at tour.com. And he asked me to be part of a Dragonlance reread. And I, I don't know what I expected going back to those books. I still loved them, but they were not quite what I remembered also. <laughs> so maybe that's where the tone of trepidation comes from. Hmm. Okay, also, so- to be honest, I I have had subsequently conversations with people where when you're talking about, you know, real, quote unquote, real fantasy, people make this face when you mention TSR, Wizards of the Coast properties. There's a face. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. But I mean, I, I, I mean, I haven't gone back and reread them since as a kid. So maybe, you know, I would be disappointed if I did. But I mean, like The Legend of Huma by Richard Knack. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the um the second um Weiss and Hickman trilogy. um. I forget if it was Legends or whatever. It's like Legends, the time yep. of the twins, et cetera. I, yep. At least in my memory, that was an amazing story. Um, so uh, I don't know. If, did you go back and reread that? I didn't read the Legends. We just did the um, we just did the Chronicles, Chronicles. trilogy. Yeah, I, I mean, those were adapted straight from the mod- the D and D modules. So I, I I wouldn't be surprised if those were a little you know formulaic or whatever. You know, it's actually, I still think it holds up um, story-wise. It, it was just more the the way the story was, stories were told and certain aspects of the stories, um, notably the relationships and especially the romantic relationships, just didn't really work for me the second time around. Um, but, you know, I... I still think they, they hold up as stories. And, and I don't know, I don't have a problem with tropes. I don't even have a problem with things that are derivative provided they're well done. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, Sturm Brightblade dying. That was the first, like, good guy dying that really hit me reading books. I mean, those are, you know, those are really formative books for me. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I did a drawing of of Lorana standing over a dead Sturm that I was very proud of in Grade <laughs> 7. <laughs> well, yeah. So let's talk about, so were you writing, drawing around this time? I was mostly drawing and playing music. Um, I did quite a bit of writing around sort of grade seven, which may or may not coincidentally be around the time that my mom found some old typewriter that she had. And I was just fascinated with it as a machine. There was something about typing on it that was just so physically satisfying. The clacking of the keys and just, so I just sat in front of that thing. And I I think I read, uh, I think I wrote rather a bunch of Star Trek books. And by books, I mean, you know, kind of 10 chapters, which when you're 12 or 13 years old is pretty much a magnum opus. Well, um, you mean, do you mean 10 pages? No, no, 10 chapters. And how long were each, was each chapter? Well, I don't know, Dave, because, you know, the typewriter doesn't count the words. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really don't know. And But, you know, I bet you if I asked my mom, she has some of those pages in boxes somewhere. 
She's one, of, she's one of those people. Because I had this experience where I had this quote-unquote novel I was working on as a kid. And in my memory, it was like 100 pages long. And then I went back and looked at it later, and it was actually like 12 pages long. So. <laughs> it could be. It could be. And I hand-wrote some of this stuff, too. And I was really interested in um, the Old West at around that time as well. So I think I seem to recall that I wrote – it was either a Young Guns fiction or a Young Riders fiction, but I was into really both of them, so I can't remember which it was. But there was just there was just you know a lot of twenty something dudes running around with six shooters. That's all I really remember. But so then but I'm you, sure it was awesome. But you, then you set the writing aside for a while. I did, yeah. I, I just was really intense about music for a long time, and I was pretty sure that's what I was going to do. But I was one of those people that I don't know couldn't really commit to to one thing or another. I was you know doing theater also. I was just kind of all over the place, um, and I didn't really get into writing seriously until I was much older. So, um, so, so this is, I mean, I, so you went to, uh, so you grew up in Calgary, right? And then yeah. went to college in Vancouver. Yep. And then, um, were you, so were you out of kind of fantasy and science fiction? Like, were you not like writing or going to conventions or anything through the, through that period? No, I, I mean, I attended my first convention, uh, in New York Comic Con a couple of years ago, like five years ago. So uh, conventions weren't really on my radar. Um, and I did, I wasn't even really reading genre fiction for that period. Basically, yeah, through, through that university period, I wasn't reading that stuff at all. Were you so, cause you play a lot of video games now. Were you playing a lot was, of video games then? I was playing a lot of video games. It's that, that I was still doing. Um, yeah maybe like the one sort of junior high, high school pursuit that I never, <laughs> that I never let go of other than music. Um, but yeah, I wasn't really into that stuff then. Um, I had stopped kind of fell out of love with it or whatever, or maybe I just, I think it's partly to, you know, some of the stuff that you maintain your interest in is dictated by your social circle and the so social circle that I left behind in Calgary, um, you know, shared those interests and the social circle that I had in Vancouver was much more interested in music. And so I think, and that was self-selecting in some ways, but you know, those things come become sort of self-reinforcing. And so if nobody else around you is doing it, it's, it's not necessarily something that you carve out a lot of time for, especially if you're a busy person, you know? So, yeah, I just, I wasn't doing a lot of reading of any kind at that point, I have to say. And so then did working for the UN come first or getting back into writing come first? Uh, getting back into writing, but it was concurrent and related in the sense that, um, so we were in Vancouver and I had plans with a capital P <laughs> and, and then I met a boy and he ended up getting a job with the UN in Geneva. So that kind of hit fast forward on our relationship because we had to get married, um, in order of, I mean, we were planning to get married anyway by that point, but it, it kind of hit fast forward on all the plans and we picked up and moved to Geneva. And I thought, this is going to be great because I have a graduate degree in international politics. I speak fluent French. This is perfect. I could not find a job. So my agent likes to say <laughs> that I should write the book Jobless in Geneva um, because that's really how it started. I, I needed a reason to like have discipline and do something. Um, and so I would kind of get up in the morning and sit at my computer and, and I'm not really sure why I decided this was the time to do the writing that I had always kind of thought about back in my junior high, high school days. I couldn't really tell you why that's the thing I settled on, except perhaps that I didn't know anybody. And so it was one of the only things that I could do as a solitary pursuit that really felt satisfying. Um, and so that's what I did. 
And I ended up around that time seeing an open call with, were they still TSR at that point or were they Wizards of the Coast? I don't remember. This would have been around 2002, 2002, 2003. I'm not sure. It's around the time that Wizards bought out TSR. I'm not sure what year it was exactly. And they did an open call for a series they were doing uh, called Realms of the Dragons that was, you know, short stories and anthology. And they were doing two of those. And the first anthology was sort of all the, the big names working in the Forgotten Realms. I should have said it was Forgotten Realms. Um, in, in their kind of stable of authors, as they put it. And then they did a second round. And in that second round, um, I ended up with a story in that. And so that's kind of how it all got launched. It was a little bit by accident, but I suppose that's the way life works. Okay, so sorry. So you're, you're in Geneva and you write this Forgotten Realms short story and just sort of send it in for this kind of contest? Kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. skipping a step, which is that actually the contest, the open call was for a novel. And I had just forgotten that until just now. Um, but it was for it was for a novel. And those of us who were shortlisted for the novel but didn't land the novel were asked to submit proposals for this anthology. Did you write a novel? No, they, this, this was just like, um, you would do, I can't remember how many chapters it yeah, was. Yeah, like three chapters or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. And so then you're like, all right, I'm on my way. I got my, my short story published. Well, at this point, I, yeah, I was like, this is a foot in the door with Wizards of the Coast that does a lot of obviously, um, uh, tie in fiction. And so, you know, they have a roster of authors that they call on. And this means that I get to be on the list of people who get to pitch novels. And indeed, that's what happened. And I ended up um, submitting a successful proposal for a novel for the Ravenloft line. Um, And I was like, now this now that I have a book deal in hand is where I get myself an agent. And I was absolutely adamant that this was the opportunity to get an agent because of course, that's, if not the hardest step in your road to publishing, at least if you want to be traditionally published, if it's not the hardest step, it's got to be, it's definitely in the top two. <laughs> um, so I, I figured having a, a book deal in hand was a really good place to start um, in terms of getting an agent. And I was right about that. I don't know whether I would have made it over the transom otherwise. Um, but through that process, I managed to get an agent. Um, and then, you know, then the, the train jumped the tracks pretty significantly because they ended up canceling the Ravenloft line before that book ever got written. So that was a huge heartbreak. I remember being devastated. I was in the Congo at the time. I knew it was going to be bad news because I got an email from my agent saying, can we talk? And I was like, I'm in the Congo. And he said, yeah, but can we talk? <laughs> I was like, oh, God, this is not going to be good news. And and it wasn't. And I, I remember being heartbroken. And he was just like, you don't need them. <laughs> <laughs> just do your own thing. Um, and so that's what I did. And he was very patient with me um, writing what became Dark Walker, which was my debut novel. And he, he saw it through some drafts, did not, did not spare the criticism. Um, but and this is, was, this is not a tie-in novel. This is an original no. thing. Yeah. Yeah. As... It's a secondary world, dark fantasy mystery. Um, and yeah, so I wrote, I wrote that in a, in a different part of Africa where I was basically on lockdown. I am no stranger to lockdown. 
I've spent a lot of my professional career in some shade of lockdown. Um, so I have to say when you're, when you're writing books, lockdown, um, lockdown and books go well together. Right. Well, let's, cause you sort of, we sort of buried the lead there that you were spending, you visited 50 different countries or something. Um, yeah, I think I counted that at one point. Uh, so on your uh, LinkedIn page, you have your job titles listed as political risk analyst, research associate, emergency specialist, and peace building specialist. Mm. So I saw a street fighter. So I feel like I basically know what that is, but um, <laughs> maybe just expand yeah. on, on that for people who haven't seen street fighter. I mean, that's those job titles are just the sorts of things that kind of only have meaning within that particular um, line of work. But I basically started out as um, a research assistant for a part of the UN that looks at um, small arms and light weapons mostly, but disarmament in general. Um, so, you know, the, the, the people who want to take all your guns, I'm being facetious. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I started out as a research assistant there, and then I ended up in a part of, uh, with, with UNICEF in a part of the UN that was dedicated to humanitarian response. Um, and so my job was kind of being on the the headquarters the headquarters helpline, you know, on the on the phone with the with the people in the field who needed some part of the headquarters apparatus to do something. So they needed supplies, they needed staff, they needed money, they needed diplomatic support, they needed something. Um, and then I ended up being the person on the other end of the phone um, who was getting sent out to support the response in in the various countries, which is how I ended up in so many different places. Um, and in so many different places where you couldn't really go out and do much, or if you could, there wasn't that much to do. Um, so I, yeah, spent a lot of time. Cause, cause these are dangerous places. Yeah, so. they're dangerous. And the UN is a very risk averse organization. So it has, um, a lot of very strict rules and regulations when it comes to where international staff, um, that is staff who are not from the country where they're working where international staff are allowed to go. And so if you're in a place that's deemed a certain level of, of insecure for whatever reason, um, you kind of, there, there's a, a really restricted number of places that you're allowed to go and the conditions under which you're allowed to go there. Um, and so you end up, yeah, spending a lot of time on either voluntary or actual lockdown. Which is good for your writing career. <laughs> Well, it's nice. It was nice to have something to do because, you know, that, that was kind of the pivot point between, um, between those days when, when all of the media that we had was in some sort of physical form, whether it's a CD or a DVD or whatever, um, and being able to download things. And so you'd be in these places where you had really no internet to speak of. There was no, there was no shopping of any kind. Your access to entertainment of any sort was extremely limited. Um, and even just going out after dark to a house party was an undertaking. You know, everybody has to stop at nine o'clock for radio check. Um, and getting from A to B, you have to go in a convoy or it has to be an armored vehicle or blah, blah, blah. So what is, I don't even know what, what does that mean? Stop at nine o'clock for a radio check? In some places, you have to do a daily radio check. So when you arrive in an insecure place as an international just to staff let them know member, that you're still there. Alive and breathing. Yeah. Yep. And if you don't answer radio check in some places, they're pretty intense about it. So everybody gets a call sign and you literally have to tune in at nine and they call out the call sign of every single international staff member in, in that duty station. And it's just a slog. Um, and you wait for your call sign and then you come back and you say, 
something, five by five, all clear, whatever, and you move on. It's a part of life and you can't forget. So, okay. So picking up the story with the, the, so the agent, so, so Dark Walker gets published, right? 2013. Yep. And so, um, kind of within what happened with your writing career from there. Um, so Dark Walker gets published. Um, that was picked up as a two book deal. So Dark Walker and Master of Plagues. And then at the same time for that same editor, I sold another series. So I actually had five books under contract before I'd even, you know, sort of filed more than one book. So that was a very, that was a, a time of desperate writing for me because I was under contract for two books a year while holding down a full-time job. And had, had you ever met your agent and editor or were you just, you know, abroad? So you, it was all over the phone or something? I had met them um, by this point because I was still based in New York. So as much time as I, I spent in the field, I also spent, I spent most of my time in New York. Um, so I was, I was fortunate in that way because I could have lunch with my agent and I could have lunch with my editor um, and, you know, see them at various drinks events or whatever. So I had, um, I had already met my agent. I had met, um, I had met my editor, I think one time. Um, and then, yeah, so they bought two different series and they decided that, that was both um, Ace Rock. So they decided to put one under rock under one name and the other under ace under a different name. Different, um, different pseudonyms, just to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, the, the rock one being under E.L. Tetensor and the ace one being under Aaron Lindsay because they are just completely tonally different. Um, and we kind of went from there. And so the, the Bloodbound trilogy, by the time that was finished, um, I was ready for something completely different. Uh, that by the time Bloodsworn came out, um, my stint with the UN was coming to an end. We were living in Burundi by that point, um, and I was exhausted. To be to be very frank, I was just shattered. Um, we were living in Burundi, which is not an easy place to live. Um, we were there at a particularly uneasy, unstable period. So I had these two books a year that I had coming out. I had a full time job with the UN. Um, and there was a coup and it was just, it was exhausting. So I needed to take five. So that's what I did. And when I came up for air, I had a completely different idea for a completely different series in mind. Um, and that's how the Rose Gallagher series came about. Okay. So before we get to that, let me just, cause I don't know, really know anything about um, the Bloodbound series, but it's, it's sort of epic fantasy, right? Like um, secondary worlds. Yeah. It's an armor horses stuff. It it's a popcorn movie. It's um it's it's secondary world. It's um it's it doesn't have uh, you know any other any other humanoid species or anything like that. It's it's all humans. It's roughly medieval. Um it's definitely informed by a lot of my experience um in in particular in Africa, but actually both both of my fantasy series are, but but in ways that you probably wouldn't notice unless you were quite familiar with those contexts. Um, just in terms of some of the the cultural touch points, um, but it, it's basically the story of um of a noble woman who becomes bodyguard to the king um, at a time when her country is on the brink of being um, overtaken by an expansionist empire next door, and you know there's a, a hefty dose of romance in it. It's um, Tanya Huff called it heroic fantasy. 
more than epic fantasy. And I think I would agree with that just in terms of what the, what the stakes are. It's the much more sort of personal stakes. There, there are kind of existential stakes to the degree that their kingdom might be conquered. Um, but it's not going to end the world. So the, the stakes are, are, are very high for the people involved, but you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not something on the order of, uh, Lord of the Rings, for example. Yeah. I mean, was it difficult writing a fantasy trilogy? You have to make up the whole world and, and everything. Um, I would say that it's most difficult at the beginning and then the train kind of picks up momentum. Um, Bloodsworn kind of that's the third book in the series kind of wrote itself. And I didn't have any experience writing, um, writing a trilogy or, or anything of that narrative ambition before that. So I couldn't really say then whether it was typical, but now having three books under my belt of a different series, I, I feel kind of you do, you do hit your stride. You know intuitively how the characters are going to respond um, to a given situation. And you don't, you don't spend as much time, of course, thinking about the world building because by that point, it, it's if it's not all on the page, it's it's probably all in your file somewhere, or at least in your head. Um, so so the, so the heavy lifting is really done, I think, before you even start writing. So I think I met you around the time I think Bloodsworn had just come out um, within the past year or something. That sounds about right. Um, and so I met you at the Jabberwocky Literary Agency party, mm -hmm. and I understood Lisa Rogers is your agent, right? Yeah. Joshua started out as my agent and then um and then Lisa came in um and she's kind of the point person now. Okay. Yeah, so had you and I you know I obviously I went to like hundreds of events in New York and I don't think I'd met you up until that point or you know were you like going to like KGB or No. Nurse I was almost, any of that stuff? I was almost never around. That was the period when I met you. I was um either still living in Burundi or had just left. Um, and that was the point where I was in New York maybe once a year. Okay. But even before that, the the last five years or so of my UN career were very, very busy, very heavily over, overseas. So, you know, I'd be in Pakistan for three months or I'd be in Jordan for three months or I'd be in Haiti or wherever for a long time. So I, you know, I was at a couple of drinks events and things like that, but almost never was around coinciding with something that was going on, which was really frustrating for me because of course, meeting other people is is hugely important, not just from a sort of career development point of view, but just it's nice to have other people to, to talk to and bounce ideas off of, not necessarily creative ideas, but well, that too, but sort of to, to understand your industry. And I kind of felt like I was in a bit of a bubble there. Um, that, you know, I, I was just such a neophyte about all of it and didn't really understand. Like, I remember so distinctly one of the um, only events that I went to was, I think it was, if it wasn't Jabberwocky hosting it, there were a lot of Jabberwocky people there. And Peter V. Brett was there. And Joshua introduced us. Joshua is also his agent. And he introduced us and he said, this is Erin and she's got five books under contract to, to, to whatever. And, she, but she's living in Burundi right now. And there was this look on Pete's face and he said, you're going to, you're going to do two books a year. And I said, yeah. And it was just, you could see the struggle of, of him wanting to say, are you crazy? <laughs> but being too polite to say, are you crazy? And he was just like, good, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking right at that moment, have I made a terrible mistake?
Um, and I don't know if the answer was yes, but like I said, I just about blew out all the tires on it. I, I was so, so spent by the time it was over. And I, I know like now you, you sort of split your time between, or I guess now you're in, in Calgary because of COVID, I guess, but like you were yeah. splitting your time between Calgary and New York. So like, was that the case then as well? Or like, is there a scene in, do you know any science fiction writers in Calgary or, or you know, is there a scene there? I don't even know. Um, well, there's, there's a couple of, of, uh, sci-fi fantasy writers, um, including sci-fi fantasy writers of note in Calgary. And I've crossed paths with them. Um, some of them at, uh, there's a local festival called When Words Collide, um, and sort of cross paths on Twitter and things like that. But, but I admit that, um, if there is a scene, I haven't really integrated myself into it yet. Um, we have been here full time since, 2016. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I can't, there's definitely a, a, an active local writer scene, but as far as uh, sci-fi fantasy goes, um, it's, it's not really something I've rolled up my sleeves and got into yet. I think in part because I've been so focused on the historical mystery side of things since I got here, um, that that would be more the scene that I would probably be working with right now. And so had you published, I guess there was the, the Forgotten Realm story. Had you written any, there's not any other short fiction um, that I could find except for something in the um, Sean Speakman's Unfettered 2 anthology. Had, had yeah. you been writing really any other, any short fiction? No, no, not at all. Um, not since high school. I had, I literally didn't write a short story between high school and the one that ended up in Realms of the Dragons. Um which the, the one that it, so it was hard. I had forgotten. I mean, short fiction is, is a great medium because it's, it's really challenges you to do more with less. Um, and I, I quite like it, but no, I, I hadn't, um, done much of it. How, how did the it, unfettered really. two thing come about? Um, that was a penguin random house signing event is how that came about in the margins of, uh, New York city comic con. And I met Sean there and he was gracious enough to ask, if, uh, if I would be interested in participating. So I did a short story from the Bloodbound universe um, for that. And yeah, that, that was nice. I got to tell a little bit of backstory that I would not have otherwise been able to tell. So I appreciated that. Yeah. And then earlier you mentioned porno catch. Like how did, how'd you get involved with that? Um, in a really roundabout way. Um, I'm trying to remember what the review. So, so Jared, if you've never read any of his reviews, they're amazing. I think he's one of the best reviewers out there. Um, I don't know how much reviewing he's doing these days, but, um, just really long and thoughtful reviews, often very funny, sometimes savage. Um, I can't remember who he was reviewing. Um, it was something grimdark. Anyway, um, what there was something he said that I ended up, um, wanting to talk about you know me, I'm very contrary. <laughs> so, so I had something to say about it. And I dropped a comment on his website and he responded to the comment and we got into a bit of a back and forth. And then somehow he, I, I didn't, I don't remember if I suggested it or if he independently decided he wanted to read one of my books, but he did. And he liked it and he reviewed it and he reviewed it uh, very charitably um, and became just kind of really a, a champion. And I, and I really appreciated that about him. Um, anyway, so he asked me to start um, writing some blog posts for his site, which I did. I wrote a lot of blog posts for his site. For a while, I did a feature called Villain of the Month. 
Um, and I religiously did it every month where I reviewed a villain from whether it was television or movies or whatever. And I was all over the place. I mean, it wasn't genre villains only. Um, my favorite was the review I did, well, review, the, the feature I did on Al Swearingen from Deadwood, which I highly recommend. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was kind of, I think that's where I sort of cut my teeth on quote unquote criticism of, because uh, I, I did write some reviews for his site as well. Um, I recall I did a review for Logan. I don't know why that one sticks out. I think I did a Star Wars review as well. Um, and yeah, so that's how that came about. And and that was that was good fun. Why is this site called Porno Kitch? <laughs> it's a great question. I think Jared ended up devoting a, an entire post to that at one point. And I don't really remember the story, but it is it is really strange. Um, and I think if they had it to do over again, they probably wouldn't have gone that route because their site did. I mean, it was the type of site where you would see comments from, you know, like, well, big writers, Joe Abergrammy or um, Gail Carriger, or, you know, he had people reading his reviews. Um, but then you would try to link to it and you'd say, I've done a blog post at Porno Kitsch. And, you know, a lot of people are just not going to click on that. Be like, yeah. I don't know it seems like a foreseeable is. sort of issue that might come up. <laughs> yeah, I really can't tell you how he ended up there, how they, he and Anne ended up there. I just, I just don't know. I did read the story, but I've forgotten exactly what the yeah. what the backstory there is. But it is, is I agree, it's a non-choice. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Though. So you said you wrote like several dozen blog posts for them. Yeah. Well, because I mean, I had the the villain of the month thing I did for about a year, so that's a dozen right there. Um, and yeah, some, some other reviews and some stuff that I did. And through him, I, um, started, I did a few blog posts as well for tour.com. Um, that was kind of after he had set up that guest blogging about, about Dragonlance. So have you written, so you've written for, for those two sites or have you written for any, done any other reviews or, um, articles or anything? Just those two. Just those two. There's a there's one that I'm particularly proud of on Tor.com. That's like an extended Aaron rant on uh, gender reviewing in fantasy. If you're interested, it's called "When Mary Sue Failed the Bechdel Test." Sorry, so, so on gender reviewing. What yeah, is- like gendered reviews. People people who think they're doing feminist reviews, but aren't. No, I remember that um that article um. It went around because it was even like on, um, was it Starship Sofa or something? Um, News to me. <laughs> it, it did. It did do the rounds a little bit. That's I, I don't. I I don't know that you could say it went viral, but it did do the rounds a little bit. I thought. I thought they had you on to talk about it. Um, oh, the, the, yeah. There was um, a podcast out of Vancouver that had me on to talk about it. Okay. Uh, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Oh, okay. Was it them? All right. That was my first podcast appearance. Yeah. Have you done other podcasts besides Geeks? No, I'm exclusive to you, Dave. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, I don't know. It'll probably have been mentioned in the intro and stuff, but yeah, Aaron's been on the show 24 times previously. You're actually the um, most frequent guest other than John Joseph Adams at this point. So. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of people who are all kind of around 20 who, you know, leapfrog each other. You're, you're repeatedly, but at the moment you're 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 the number one. Sweet. Um, all right. So yes, yeah, so you started talking about. So then you um, got into the Rose Gallagher series. So kind of how did that come about? 
Yeah, that came about in a kind of, uh, like so many things, again, a, a strange sort of way. I was in um, in Burundi, and around the time that my first book came out, I got a care package from my editor at Ace Rock, which was a really big deal because it was just, it's. I can't emphasize enough how impossible it is to get just about anything in Burundi. <laughs> um, so I get this big box full of books. And basically, you know, um, she's kind of, grabbed titles from all over the office of things that were coming out that Ace Rock was putting out. Um, but, you know, it came DHL and it just was like a godsend. And in that box was um, Gods of Gotham by Lindsay Fay. I don't know if you've read it. No, no. Um, historical fiction set in New York in the 1860s, I believe, if memory serves. Um, tell, it's a story of a, of a cop. Did you ever see that show, a short-lived show on BBC called Copper? No, I don't think I've even heard of it. Okay. Last try. Caleb Carr's The Alienist. Uh, Still I've heard nothing. of it, but I haven't read it. <laughs> anyway, um, that kind of vibe anyway. Um, historical fiction, um, police um, procedural sort of set in, in 1860s New York. And I loved it. And it really... <laughs> One of the things I loved, uh, other than the fact that it's just beautifully written, um, I realized that I'm at this point too, I was completely pining for New York City. I missed it so much because I mean, I was a just a born New Yorker from the day I set foot in that city. Um, and I loved it. And, you know, when we moved away, it was really heartbreaking for me and I missed it so much. So having this book, and, and I've always been super um, interested in history, just Every, you know, every time I travel, I want to see all the oldest places and go there. And I just really feel like they're just steeped in so much feeling. It's like you can experience the memories in your head um, when you're in these, some of these places. And, and I love that about New York, that there's still so much of it that's so, so vivid. Um, a lot of it hasn't changed physically for a long time. Um, and what has changed has been so scrupulously recorded that I've just always felt that it's historically a very evocative city. Um, and so it just, it really kind of clicked for me that I would love to write something that was set um, a period piece in New York. But I, I, you know, was a fantasy writer and I, I am a fantasy writer and had a hard time envisioning myself doing anything that didn't have at least some speculative element. And so the Rose Gallagher mysteries came about as this, idea to blend the desire to do historical fiction in New York with a supernatural element. Um, and yeah, it just kind of came as a thunderclap, honestly. And the, the first line of the first book was in my head almost instantaneously as soon as I decided on it as a concept. I remember quoting it to my husband in a cafe in Paris, just being like, here's the first line. What, what and, was the first line? Um, as I tell you this story, I'll thank you to remember that I was young and in love. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, and it's just one of those things that just kind of flew flew out of me. Um, and that's how you know you're really inspired is when you don't really have to stop to think too much about it. Um, so a lot of the world building came ex post facto in the second draft. And the first draft was just kind of flying through the paces of a, of a cozy mystery, essentially. Yeah, well, so I, I, you know, I just read The Silver Shooter, which is the third book in the series, and I hadn't, I haven't read the first two, and I actually, you know, you, I had seen that you, um, that they were coming out and everything, and I didn't even realize they had supernatural elements. Um, you know, that wasn't 
necessarily apparent to me from the the covers and stuff. So <laughs> at some point you you just mentioned it, but they I mean I, I assume they're all the same. But the the silver shooter it's this very like clear mix of yeah you know, like mystery, romance, uh, historical, and supernatural. Yeah, um, pretty even proportions are all you know like. Yeah, and the balance between them shifts somewhat from one book to the next. Um, and but you know the fact that that you didn't realize that is, I would say, deliberate to the extent that you know, um, Minotaur is a, is a mystery publisher. Um, they're not a spec fic publisher, and they are marketing this and have always marketed this as historical mystery with a dash of supernatural. And so they've, they've definitely, the, in terms of the titles that have been chosen for the book, the cover treatments, all of that, um, is very deliberately cueing for, for cozy historical mystery. It's not an accident that that speculative element isn't front and center. So then do people ever read them and they're just like, what's this ghost doing in my historical All novel? the time. <laughs> <laughs> I take it you haven't been on the Goodreads page. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Um, yeah, there's lots of it. And so so the surprise element was definitely, surprise, there's a ghost, <laughs> um, <laughs> was definitely foreseen and deliberate. And the, the gamble is that more people will be pleasantly surprised than unpleasantly surprised. It's always been, I confess, and I, and I hope it's not too transparent to say, a bit of a nail biter for me as a strategy. Um, when, when I order vanilla ice cream, I don't want chocolate ice cream. Even if I love chocolate ice cream, I ordered vanilla. So I'm a little bit, you know, wary of the surprise <laughs> kind of marketing technique, but, um, well, but, but that, does the jacket, I mean, the jacket copy, I think for this one makes it pretty clear. Actually, I'm not sure. Let's see. Yeah. I mean, Yes, you would be surprised how many uh, well, people you, don't says, read it, the jacket agent, copy. An agent of the special paranormal branch of the Pinkerton Agency. So that seems pretty forthright. It does, and there, and it's more forthright now that we're bo in in book three. Um, but but you know the the back cover copy, and I and I I don't want to create the impression that they're trying to hide it. They're not. They're, it's a carefully calculated balance, though, <laughs> where they want to they want you to overwhelmingly think historical mystery. And then they don't want to hide the supernatural, but they want you to, to very much be aware that that's kind of not front and center. And I think that's right in terms of the balance of the book. It is, as you say, um, fairly evenly balanced between those things. And, and that balance does shift. Like I would say there's, um, and it's interesting too, just as a, as a side note to see um, in the reviews and the trade publications and things, sometimes people really see what they want to see in the sense that one reader will say this one has way more supernatural where another than the previous book where another reviewer will say the exact opposite or the romance is really heated up in this one or there's the romance really takes a back seat in this one. So it's kind of funny, like where that balance lies seems to vary to some degree from one reader to the next. But from my perspective, the, there's the most speculative element in book one, uh, the least in book two and book three is somewhere in between. But I mean, um, it looks like the response is pretty positive. I mean, I didn't read the reviews really, but they're, you know, on Amazon, it looks like all the, you know, it was like four and a half, five star reviews for the most part. Yeah. I, I think I've, I've been fortunate and the, and the trade publications have been very kind. Um, and there's been a couple of stars for this series and, um, and it was, it was featured in BuzzFeed a, a couple of times and it just, it, the, the reception has been good. How that will translate into sales remains to be seen. I, it's definitely the case that the series is still finding its feet in that regard. Um, but 
you know, I, I can't complain about the about the quote unquote critical reception, um, and the audience reception is as far as Goodreads as a barometer has been quite good too. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is just, you know, after you've been on the show so many times, you know, I hope that people, uh, you know, notice your, you know, appreciate your contributions to, to Geek's Guide, and you know, might be interested in checking out your work. And I, I ne- never had a chance to read any of it, so I was kind of curious to check it out. And so, yeah, I really encourage people. This is a super fun book, The Silver Shooter. If you are interested in those things, romance, mystery, paranormal, um, historical, I mean, you know. It's really, really good and strong in all those areas. Um, I'll tell you that actually what really got me to read this one is that, you know, I just recently moved to Texas. So I was kind of in mm-hmm. the mood to read something about cowboys. And, cowboys, yeah. Um, and I'm also a, a big Teddy Roosevelt. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 well, I don't know if I don't know, wouldn't say I know a lot about Teddy Roosevelt, but I have this funny te- Teddy Roosevelt story that's always made me kind of interested in Teddy Roosevelt. Um, so those were kind of the things. You want to hear my... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. So I, um, you know, my parents and I, I was probably, I don't know, 14 or 15 or something. And we went to this place called Mohonk House. It's this kind of ski resort in uh, upstate New York. Um, and so, uh, and this was like pre-internet. So like, you know, there wasn't a lot to do if you're a kid, but they, so they had kind of kid events. And one of the kid events was they were showing Hook, the Steven Spielberg movie, where it's like Robin Williams is Peter right. Pan grown up. And I didn't know it was bad like back then because there was no internet. <laughs> and so, so I went to, uh, so I went to go watch Hook and I walk, walk into this ballroom and there's all these chairs set up and I sit down and I'm like, huh, I don't see any screen. I wonder where they're going to show Hook, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I kind of look, around, I kind of look around and everyone in the audience has white hair, right? I'm like the only person under 60 in the whole room. And I'm like, huh. At this point, your spidey sense is tingling. It seems like a weird audience for Hook, you know, but I don't know. It's my first time at Mohonk House. I don't even know. And so then this this guy comes in. He's like, "Hi everyone, I'm Teddy Roosevelt." And he goes around <laughs> and shakes everyone's hands. And I'm like, "Why do they have Teddy Roosevelt like inter- introducing Hook? This is like such a weird event, you know?" And then like obviously eventually I realize I've gone to the wrong room. And but it's this Teddy Roosevelt impersonator, and he was amazing. He tells this whole he's like, "Ah, when I was a kid, I was like scrawny and weak, but through sheer force of will, I just like worked out and became <laughs> super strong." And um. Yeah, and so I was like, this Teddy Roosevelt guy is really interesting. I'm trying to remember. There's one other thing that uh, really stuck in my mind. Let's see. I had a note. Let's see. Oh, the, the, the story about how, of course, about teddy bears. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I, I feel like this is becoming too much about me. But but the, the very short version is that uh, Teddy Roosevelt had a reputation as a, a, a hunter. And so this mayor, as a publicity stunt, wanted Teddy Roosevelt to come to town to kill the bear that was kind of wandering around in town. And Teddy went to go shoot it and... It was so cute. He just couldn't bring himself to shoot it. And so it became kind of like a funny story. And they started making these little bears, you know, that were the bear that it was so cute that he couldn't shoot. And those that's where teddy bears come from. So, yeah. Yeah. The version of the story I heard was a little bit different that he came for a hunt and he was supposed to, to, to shoot a grizzly bear, but they didn't find one. And so, yeah, as a publicity stunt, I, I don't remember if it was a mayor who it was, but it, like basically had had a bear tied up and was like, here you go. And Roosevelt was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not going to shoot a captive bear. What's wrong with you, man? Um, like, and yeah, well, I'm just, I'm just telling you like how I, legend. how I remember it when I was 14, when I was trying to find Hook. So I like, don't take anything I mean, it's, I say too all seriously. right. Okay. Um, but he's, I mean, he's an amazing figure. Um, not perfect, of course, but um, 
but but of all the the historical figures that I've researched over the years, for whatever reason, um, he's by far the most compelling and most interesting. He just just the the sheer force of personality um, and the determination. I, I don't know that I could name another person um, who seems to have just been so fixated on becoming a certain thing, come hell or high water, no matter how implausible it was. Um, and it's just he's he's a fascinating. A fascinating person. Um, and I've read a lot by him and about him at this point, and I still just can't get enough. He's just, he's, well, he's almost like a fantasy character. Even in his flaws, like, he's interesting. Go ahead. No, that's all I was going to, I was just going to say he's like, a no, but he character. is. I mean, and, and it's, it's funny to me, even, you know, my, my mom just finished the silver shooter and she came to the author's note. Um, and she was like, I just thought you made all that stuff up. <laughs> and I was like, okay, first of all, I never make stuff up. It's kind of my thing. <laughs> like I will put myself through torturous plot devices in order to not make things up. Like if, if there's a, if there's documentary evidence that someone was in the bathroom at this time, they're going to be in the bathroom in the book because <laughs> it's just, it's on paper. Um, I never make anything up. So that kind of annoyed me. But anyway, beside that, um, it just even people of her generation, just all of this stuff, it sounds like legend and you would be perfectly, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to think that all of these different lives could not have been led by the same person, but they were. Well, and a lot of characters in this book are historical figures or inspired by historical figures. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the, the fun part about it. Um, for me is, is blending that, that fact with fiction. And so for each of the books, um, all three murder on millionaires row, golden grave, and this one silver shooter, they all started in terms of plotting with an actual historical event that just either sounded fishy or, or cool or like a good plot device. So for the first book, it's the um, blowing up of flood rock in 1885. There used to be um, just off Astoria, in Long Island Sound there, there used to be, um, you know, there's like all those little atolls kind of, well, that's not the right word for it. They're rocks, <laughs> small, <laughs> small islands um, uh, in, in just in the East River there um, between Queens and Manhattan. And in 1885, the Army Corps of Engineers decided to blow one up to make it easier for ships to get by. So they, they did, it, it was at the time the largest they reckon the largest explosion ever. And it shattered windows like all the way across to the Hudson river. Uh, it was huge. And the newspapers made a great deal out of it. And it was just like a, a really big deal. So they have this huge explosion in the East river in a place called Hellgate, And I was like, well, obviously that's a good place to start. So in the book, that explosion accidentally uh, pops open a portal to the other world. And that is, and you know, all these dead people start coming out. So that's kind of the jumping off point for, for book one. And then book two was uh, Theodore Roosevelt running for mayor of New York. So it's kind of part um, political thriller, part comedy of manners um, because it's in book one, Rose is a housemaid and, and her boss goes missing. And this is how she ends up uh, getting into the detection business is that she takes it upon herself to find her missing boss. So by book two, she's a Pinkerton um, and she's learning to navigate 
high society. So there's a lot of comedy of manners of, you know, Irish housemaid Rose Gallagher is, you know, in the, in the orbit of Astors and Vanderbilts and she doesn't have any idea how to conduct herself. Um, and then book three is, is Roosevelt asking them to investigate some, what he believes to be supernatural happenings uh, at his ranch in the Dakota Badlands. And, right. and all of that. Yeah. Just, and that was predicated on an actual incredibly devastating winter that happened in 1886. Right. And there's all these, um, you know, real historical cowboys and stuff like the sheriff from Deadwood and um, yeah. outlaws and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And each of the books has historical figures in it. My favorite to incorporate in book two was Nikola Tesla, because obviously, but, you know, every sort of every James Bond needs a cue. And if hmm. it, it so happens that at that particular period, Tesla was between jobs because he had just had his big falling out with Edison. He had yet to hook up with Westinghouse. So it was it was a good period to have, you know, Nikola Tesla rattling around with nothing better to do than to make supernatural gadgets for our intrepid <laughs> heroes. So um, so that was a lot of fun, too. Yeah. And so um, one thing, uh, there's a lot of sort of like historical terms that I, I wasn't, you know, they're kind of like, oh, that's a real term, I'm sure, like um, yellowback novels. And there's mm. also references to dime novels. I was just curious, uh, is there a difference between dime novels and yellowback novels? And did you read any as uh, research? Um, I did not read any, although I perused their covers at great length. Uh, it's a rabbit hole I highly recommend. Um, but I don't know that there's a difference between the two. Um, dime novels simply, of course, referring to, to cheap novels. Yellowback, it seems to me, and I've forgotten. It'll be in my notes somewhere. You should see my notes. Stacks <laughs> and stacks and stacks. But um, it's something to do with the company that first became successful putting out these pulp novels. Um, they had yellowbacks. Yeah. Um, and it sort of became synonymous with it. But um, But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love most about writing this series aside from the fact that it is it's just it's fluff and fun and it's it makes no pretensions to the contrary it's just feel good books lots of humor um sort of rollicking adventure um there there's nothing head scratching or, or or thematically heavy about it at all um but but that isn't to say that it isn't an intellectual pursuit for me at least as the writer because i spend so much time one of the reasons it takes me so long to write these books is because I fall down a rabbit hole on almost a daily basis in the research because I'm just, I just find it all so interesting. And so you wouldn't necessarily know it in the page, but I, I will say it's all tweezed to within an inch of its life. There isn't a word used that I haven't looked up to make sure it's period accurate. Um, at least I don't think so. I've, I've been very careful about it. There's, a whole bunch of yeah, all of that all of that jargon and terminology and turns of phrase. I have a book on period slang, like all of it, because I just I like the craftsmanship of it. it it's it's fun for me, even if nobody knows that it's there. How about the supernatural stuff? I don't know if this is a, maybe too much of a spoiler, but one of the terms in the book is the all round a l r a u n. Is that something you invented, or is that uh, mm -mm. drawn from something? No, it's, it's out there. It's a, it's a German, um, it's it, spell, is spell the right word? I'm not even sure, but it's, uh, it's got Germanic roots, um, hence the, the, that word, um, with Germanic roots. And it's, um, you can find it on a number still today of, uh, witchcraft sites. 
and it's as described in the book. It's a, I mean, it doesn't generally, generally result in a monster, <laughs> but it's, it's a way of um, capturing a spirit within a root, usually of a mandrake or an ash and all that stuff about ash trees, all of that. Um, and it, that comes up in all of the books. Um, that's all got basis in a number of different traditions. Um, all the stuff that I talk about at the beginning of the book, when, you know, when they're sitting in at the back of Mr. Wang's shop and they're talking about elementals, um, all of the traditions that they talk about there, that's all real stuff. Um, I don't, I yeah, didn't make I was, any of it up. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the ash and also the salt water and mineral water. That's, is that, that's a real tradition? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that you see a lot in association with, um, in, with the Fae. Um, and a lot of the different uh, European traditions, um, have, similar have overlap in that where certain elements it's usually salt or iron uh, again ash are things that repel the fae or that keep the dead at bay um there are different takes on it but there it, it's one of the things that i find interesting when you're researching um spiritualism and 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 all of that sort of various myth mythical traditions is the degree of overlap from vastly different cultures. There's a lot of overlap between them, which is really interesting. Like the ash tree comes up in a lot of different cultures, for example. Um, the idea of, of elementals comes up on, in many, many major traditions, Eastern and Western. So it's, it's really interesting to see how humanity has kind of taken the same inputs and come up with a lot of the same outputs in terms of the narratives that we craft to explain some of these things that we don't understand. Yeah, and then they all end up in the monster manual. So exactly, nice. they do. <laughs> they do. Uh, fun fact: I have a creature in the D and D monster manual, the Forgotten Realms one. Anyway, I don't know uh, to what degree they change between the the various D and D, you know, um, the various properties, the worlds. Um, but there's a Forgotten Realms dragon that is based on one of my characters, so that's fun. Which wh what book, like what monster manual would you know for sure that it's in? The one yeah, that came up with. Forgotten Realms. Um, I like, I've got it edition? in, I don't know, ages ago now, 2002, 2003. Yeah, so probably third edition. Maybe. It's in my bookshelf. I'd have to look. So what's this? How, like, how did it end? How did your monster end up in the monster manual? It's from that short story that I mentioned from Realms of the Dragons. It's The protagonist in that story is actually a dragon. It's a fairy dragon. Um, and then his sidekick is a mist dragon and the mist dragon, Ciro Thamalan ends up, ended up, and they, by the way, never even informed me of that. I completely found out by accident, <laughs> but anyway, they took that character and put it in, in the monster manual. How, how so, did you find out? Google, I think, I think, uh, I, I don't remember. You just remember. Googled like mist, mist, mist dragon? Or? <laughs> I just, as I say that, I'm like, what would the occasion be that would have me Googling that? Maybe I was looking for reviews um, of the book and I typed in character names. That sounds like something I would have done back when I was a novice and didn't realize what a terrible <laughs> idea that is. <laughs> yeah, I like to think every writer goes through that period where they think it's a good idea to read their reviews. <laughs> I'm just imagining you're like playing Dungeons and Dragons and the dungeon master's like, and then the, the <laughs> tomb opened up and out emerged the mist dragon, such and such. You're like, Wait a minute. Wait, what? That's how I found out. They'd used my no. monster. No, no royalties for my monster, alas. Well, it was work for hire, wasn't it? Right. Like, it, it was. That's why yes. they could just take your monster and stick it and stuff. But I like, a, 
you know, an email would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever play? Do you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? No, no, I never have. Um, you never I, have. Not no. Once. Well, I don't. I tried one time. Uh, this this guy in university hosted a game, and we went to the game. Um, but I can't say a lot of the game was played at the game. Let's leave it at that. Okay. I mean, the, it is a pretty common thing where, you know, you get together to play Dungeons and Dragons and don't ever actually get around to playing Dungeons yeah, and Dragons. Yeah, we just I mean, sm- smoked a lot of weed and didn't play any Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. We, I mean, we had a lot of existential conversations. I'm sure we solved some really important world questions, but no Dungeons and Dragons was played at that time. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it was more like, you know, like early high school. So it was more you just like get together and then like read the rules and then never actually get, you know, and like spend like four hours creating your characters and then it's time for everyone to go home. So that sounds about right. I, I, we got through the rolling stage and, and I think it would, it would be disappointing that we didn't play because the dungeon master was like all squeaky about like high pitched. What is this even thinking I was cheating with my dice rolls? Apparently they were all amazing. Everything was like in the 20. <laughs> <laughs> just constant 20s is like what is this so i probably should have played that character at some point but i was much more you know what i did do though i bought a lot of the lead figurines and painted them oh yeah that i did do i really enjoyed that do you still have those you know i don't and it's really too bad because i had one in particular uh, a dragon and it was just gorgeous it, he had stripes black and red and it was just oh it was a beautiful thing of beauty like the model itself was beautiful and then i was really proud of how i painted it but i don't know whatever happened to that but it's a shame i didn't keep it yeah that's what happens when you move overseas again and again and again and again you you shed your belongings quite quickly when yeah it costs well, that would be pretty cool if you had a, to move a, them. a dungeons and dragons miniature that had been to 50 countries you know you could take you'd be <laughs> like that gnome from amelie is that the movie where you know there's like the pictures of him all over the all over the world that's basically my cat now. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, cool. So what is, uh, what's happening with, are there going to be any more Rose Gallagher books? I hope so. I don't know yet. Um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, to be honest, with, with COVID. Um, and I think everybody's moving in super slow-mo. Like this book, I still don't even have a copy of the book, by the way, which is so frustrating. Um just everything is literally so far behind and gummed up in the pipeline that, that I don't know, but I, I would love to think so. Um, in the meantime, I'm working on something different, a fantasy novel for the first time in a long time that I'm super excited about, but can say no more. Can you say what genre, like what subgenre of fantasy it is? I think probably you would call it epic fantasy. The thing about me is I I seem to have this inability and it's not deliberate, but I seem to have this inability to write anything that's straightforward. Um, So I think, you know, one of the, my, my publishers have always had the challenge of how do we market this thing that is neither fish nor fowl Um, a bit like, you know, with, with the, the Rose Gallagher series, is it historical mystery or is it fantasy or, you know, the answer is yes. Um, So, this is a long way of saying I'm not really sure that when I, when I say epic fantasy, it's that it's like mostly falling in epic fantasy. Um, there will be a, a heavy romance element because I kind of, I just, that's my jams. Um, but, but this one has a lot more thematic resonance for me. And I think it will probably draw more on my professional experience than my previous outings 
just to the extent that this one very deliberately has some some themes in it that are things I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, whereas the others have been much more plot character driven. They, I haven't really spent a lot of time on, uh, you know, uh, nothing, nothing is an allegory or a metaphor in any way meant to have historical resonance. It just, it is what it is. Um, this, this one is definitely drawing more um, on some experiences that I've had and that have really changed me as a person. Because you haven't um, written any fi- or said any fiction outside North America, right? Like, like in the real world outside North no, America. No, no. And this is a, this this fantasy is a secondary world as well. Um, no, I haven't. Um, and I've you know I've thought about to what degree am I ready to? Because for a long time I just simply wasn't ready, um, but ready to sort of tap into a little bit more directly my some of my own experience. Um. And I still think about that, um, but I haven't. Yeah, I haven't written anything other than the Rose Gallagher series that takes place in some place that actually exists. Yeah, it just seems like you're, you're perfectly situated to write a yeah, like a Tomb Raider, James Bond world traveling kind of thing. Yeah, Indiana um, Jones, and and for a variety of reasons, I I haven't felt comfortable doing that. Um, a big part of it was, I mean, it's just not something I, I, I could have considered while I was still working for the UN, um, just even legally. But, and, and then afterwards, I kind of felt like I needed some distance. Like it's maybe, I don't know, maybe I just take things too seriously, but it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit hard to play fast and loose with something that's important to you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, something that has for so long been played with fast and loose by just about everybody else. I mean, I think I said on, on another show, there are sort of a a handful of, um, professions or walks in life that you see often on the big screen or on the small screen. Um, like, you know, if you're a police officer or maybe an, an emergency physician or a, a trial lawyer or something like that, you're kind of used to seeing your job on the screen and, it's wrong, but I suspect nothing has been more abused than the United Nations. <laughs> like, I really don't think I've ever seen a remotely accurate depiction of it on screen. Um, so that is possibly all the more reason why somebody like me should do it. But then for whatever reason, I, anyways, I just, I haven't got there mentally, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was also just curious. I mean, we mentioned that this third book is sort of a Western, um, are you a fan of Westerns or weird Westerns or anything? I went through a phase of being really excited about all things Western. Um, I come from a place where it's kind of part of our brand. Um, you know, the Calgary Stampede is a big deal every year. Not this year for the first time in a century um, because of COVID. But it's, you know, it's kind of part of my DNA, as it were. Um, but... In terms of reading Westerns, I've only read a couple, um, but certainly I am a big fan of good Western movies. Um, I'm not, uh, and I'm, there's some Western movies that are like Hollywood pulp that I really enjoyed. Silverado comes to mind. Have you ever seen that? No, no. That's a good one. It's a really, it's a, it's a fun one. Um, but, you know, I definitely have all the time in the world for movies like The Unforgiven. That's just a great movie. Yeah. 
Um, it was funny because we did an episode on weird westerns. So I just went back and listened to them. I was just curious what we had talked about, and we we basically had concluded that The Burrowers was the only good weird western movie. So, I haven't seen it. If you haven't, it's it's really I, I it's quite it's not very well known, but it's it's quite good. It's a sort of low budget horror hmm. western movie, but uh, you know, featuring obviously like subterranean monsters. What was the one that came out not too long ago? Um, is it Aliens versus Cowboys? Is that right? <laughs> Cowboys versus Aliens. Yeah. Okay. okay all right. Yeah. Um, I. You know what? I remember watching it, and that's about it. <laughs> I, don't re- I don't remember yeah, if I liked sounds, it or that not. That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's I, uh, hmm. it's very forgettable. I, I recall it being a, a, a decent Western until the aliens show up, and then it just becomes a terrible, terrible movie. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Um, but so yeah, so uh, any uh, any contribution to the uh, you know positive contribution to the uh, weird Western genre is always appreciated. Um, we're pretty much out of time, so, uh, we should start wrapping this up pretty soon. Do you have any, uh, any final thoughts or, uh, any, uh, any other projects you want to let people know about? Um, no, I mean, I just think, um, if you're looking for something that's a, that's a pick me up and a little shameless escapism, you could definitely do worse than the Rose Gallagher series right now. But, um, but I just really appreciate you, uh, you having me on the show. I know that not, it's not, squarely in your wheelhouse this type of fiction so i do appreciate it yeah it was funny you know my, my girlfriend steph saw the cover and she's like oh that doesn't look like a book that you would read <laughs> and then I, <laughs> you're like not like, oh, really no book. <laughs> uh, but no it's it's super fun yeah i mean and there's a lot of shootouts and yeah like monsters and magic and stuff so uh you know for uh if you're into that sort of thing um and like i said you know aaron's you know been very generous with her time helping out on this podcast so uh you know it would be uh, good if uh, if you if uh, people would check out this book because, as she said, this is kind of a tough time for uh, you know for for books. Yeah, it is. Out, so. It's a tough time for everybody, and you know, I'm sure you saw Simon and Schuster is now. Uh, it looks like they're going to be bought if they can be by Penguin Random House. Did yeah. You see that? I saw that. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, so it's just that, you know, yeah. it's just more like so much pressure on anything mid list. It's basically go big or go home. It's going to be all big big box properties pretty soon across the board. So it's. Oh, it's sad. Well, not if I have anything to say about it. So <laughs> Fight the good fight, Dave. Yeah. So everyone go check out this book. It's called The Silver Shooter uh, by our guest today, Aaron Lindsay. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.